The highest rates of child poverty in the province are in Churchill and in the core of Winnipeg. The report makes recommendations to the PC government, including using federal transfer payments to bring families above the poverty line. Kate Kaler is the executive director of the Social Planning Council. But overall, even though there was a a drop in child poverty, we still need to remember that over 20% of our youth were still in poverty in 2020 during the worst of the pandemic. With all of that fear and uncertainty, they still had poverty to, to, to deal with. The worst province and second worst only Nunavut, unfortunately, is, is higher than we are. And that's been, that's been the ongoing situation for quite some time. And here in Manitoba, it's really unfortunate because one of the analysis we did in this year's report is to look at things that the province has done and how they could have been more impactful. So we had that family affordability uh, package. Why are we giving money to households with a net income of $175,000? So if you look at the two, you know, typical family, two parents and two kids, they would have gotten an extra $450. I'm going to say they didn't need that. <laughs> I called it Starbucks money and I stand by it. Um, we needed them to take that same amount of money and redistribute it to the people who most in need. And by our analysis, if they had done that and included the uh, educational property tax, rebate in that, we could have reduced child and family poverty by 86%. Wow. Uh, You're going to hear that from a lot of people. You heard it there from Kate Kaler at the Social Planning Council, but you're going to hear that again and again as we talk about this report in child poverty today. Um, Had that money, those checks that the province sent out initially, had those gone to more people in need, uh, and you you heard Kate there call it Starbucks money for many people, Uh, If it had gone to people more in need, we could have really uh, put a big dent in poverty and child poverty here in the province of Manitoba. Now, I have been on the radio in Winnipeg since 1989. That's a long time. And from the time I began here, we've talked about how poverty and child poverty is a real issue in Manitoba and in Winnipeg, of course. Um, It has been worse here than just about everywhere. Uh, I I recall times when we were the child poverty capital of Canada, Manitoba second right now to Nunavut. And but we we throw that language around child poverty poverty. What what exactly does that mean? And Kate Kaler uh, did a great job summarizing um, the line, drawing the line. Um, where you become living in poverty. Take a listen. For a single person, no child, it's it's just about $24,000. But a lone parent with one child, it's $34,000. A lone parent with two children, 42000 roughly. A couple with one child, it's forty one, And a couple with two children, it's 47000 So that is, those are kind of, that's the, that's the cutoff. So I guess, you know, we want to look at that and say, how difficult do people understand how difficult it is to get by on that amount of money? And we actually under, do, we do know that when we've polled on this question before and asked those questions, people have said, yes, they would find that either difficult or extremely difficult to get by on those sums of money, given how much it costs to raise children and give them everything that they need. Normally, what about the kids who actually need some extra help? You know, we've got, we have a, a failing mental health uh, care so oftentimes it takes, you know, you're waiting for six to eight months before you're getting to see somebody who has too many, too many kids on their case already. 
Um, so are you going to be able to opt for, say, a private psychologist if, you're, if your income is that low? No. Whereas a higher income family can actually make that expenditure on, for themselves. Same thing with just basic tutoring in school. Your child's falling behind school. You, wealthier families can hire a tutor to help that, to help that child. Those in, in lower incomes cannot. Kate Kaler at the Social Planning Council. The cost, we're already getting text messages and emails on this. Um, the cost of raising a child. I'll just read a quick text message here uh, at uh, 780-6868 because it relates to what Kate was just saying. Uh, Hal, according to the 2015 Money Sense study, it cost $253,947 to raise a single child until the age of 18. Only have children you can afford to raise, the listener says in a text message. Oh, if life we're only that easy. Keep your reaction coming as we talk about child poverty here this morning. And so Kate Kaler was asked, Social Planning Council's Kate Kaler was asked, well, what what can we do about it? Obviously, the report does have its recommendations. We never want to go forward without any of those. But number one, we actually are looking at what if the province is going to be handing out checks to people, they actually need to target them far better than they do right now because as we always say, we all pay for poverty. We pay for it in our health care system, criminal justice, and education, and child and family services. So we're paying for it. We're paying to manage it, but we're not willing to invest in paying to end it. So what we can do is that they're going to do any sort of mailing of checks, that they actually target that money, that same money, to the folks who need it. They can then also work like a Manitoba is getting record transfers from the federal government. They should be taking that money. The whole purpose of transfers is to actually equalize things across the uh, across the country. So they actually need to take that money, and they can do it. They, you know, by the analysis, we can prove we've proven that you can make a big dent in child and family poverty. So we want them to take um, take some of that money and actually direct it consistently. So an election year, we want all the parties to tell us what they're going to do on poverty. And if they don't have a plan, we need to tell them why not. Uh, we need to ask why not. And we probably need to not vote for those folks because this is one of the things that is just, it's been ongoing for too long that as, as we started out at the beginning, Manitoba is the province with the highest rate. Even, even in the situation of improvement, we are still second worst in the country. Okay. Kaler, Social Planning Council, government needs to help the poor with money. And then, of course, that has got you reacting. And I'll just read the text messages and emails, and I'll let you uh, react to the reaction, if you want. Hal, BS on giving the money to low-income people. Unless it's in the form of food stamps, the extra money for many of those families will go to alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes. Well, I think that may happen in some cases. Uh, Listen, um, these are people that are truly struggling. And I would rather help the majority than worry about a few who may be abusing the help that they're given. Debbie says, how throwing money at families living in poverty is only a temporary solution. More needs to be done than issuing checks. Absolutely. Yep. No question about it. And Al Weeb is standing by. We're going to continue our conversation here about poverty and child poverty more specifically. But ahead of uh, talking to Al, Chuck is on the line. Chuck, thank you for waiting at 204-780-6868 during the news. Go ahead. What did you want to say? Well, I just want to say that over the years uh, when I was 
a kid welfare was not uh, and was uh, not a lifestyle. It was considered a short-term uh, reprieve for people facing hard times. And now, 40, 50, 60 years later, we see generations of it. And uh, that has to stop. Uh, and going to the taxpayer continuously for increases uh, isn't, isn't the solution. And it isn't programs. It's the fact that people have to learn that they can't rely on the government for, for uh, a lifestyle. It should be a temporary. Uh, welfare shouldn't be permanent. And it is. And, and this is what we're faced today. And uh, as a result, taxes have to increase because all we have is advocates decrying the situation, and rightfully so to some degree, but, the, but uh, completely absolve any uh, responsibility on the part of the, of the recipients to improve their own situation by attending school, getting a good education, valuing uh, societal norms that most of us aspire to, rather than um, living off the generosity of others. Okay, Chuck, that's where we're going to start the conversation with Al Weeb. I'm going to let you go. Take a listen, because that's where we'll begin with Al Weeb. Normally we talk homelessness with Al, but of course it connects to poverty. Uh, uh, Al uh, has lived in poverty. Uh, the child poverty, as I've said a few times now, is heartbreaking. Al Weeb, come on in here. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Hal. Nothing against what Chuck was saying because I appreciate everybody's opinion. I really truly do. I'm kind of an old I'm kind of an old school guy too. But what Chuck was saying there is kind of an old school way of thinking, right? I he says mm-hmm. welfare has become a way of life. I would argue, yeah, and it shouldn't be that way for many people. Yeah, uh, the problem is is that folks don't realize that you know, many people aren't able to take jobs. So, you know, there there are more and more and more mental health issues uh, in play here, and and you know, the people just can't um, can't jump into those jobs. And it's easier to say, go get an education. When what about if that person isn't literate? Uh, you know, there are so many people out there with, with that issue, and and you know, we have people coming down from from the reserves to to find a better life. Um, when uh, on the reserves, there's not enough housing. You have twelve people in a house, and people come down here, and they end up on Main Street and stay there because there's no escape. And so, you know, it's not a cut and dry issue. Like uh, I want to be on welfare. I spent five years on welfare uh, after homelessness, and I did not want to be there. But I will tell you this. It is so difficult to get off of welfare because they, uh, you're struggling every day just to you know make ends meet, <clears throat> and you, even to take a job, you cannot take a job sometimes because you may have to spend your food money just to you know to have bus fare just to get to a job. It's uh, there's no cut and dried black and white issue here at all. And, uh, well, and, and being on assistance, being on assistance also isn't living in the lap of luxury either. It, it, it is not. And the problem is today is that, uh, you know, the cost of housing is not going down. There, there's a moratorium. But uh, just, for example, in our building alone, you know, uh, the rent goes up 15 percent. And people living in this particular building will find themselves out of here and on the street. Uh, it is not easy uh, living on welfare. You, uh, you know, especially with the inflation that we're seeing in the stores today. Um, you know the food bank. I just want you know the food banks are, are have uh, the use of food banks have doubled fifty percent since ni- uh, twenty nineteen. Fifty percent. 
And you know, we uh, and you know, we do have the, the highest child poverty rate in the country, as I'm sure uh, guests on your show have said that already. But we do have the highest rate of child poverty, and it's so hard to rise above that without uh, you know some substantial help somewhere. Yeah, I, I, I should have said that to begin the half hour, but we went right to Chuck on the phone. But this new mm-hmm. child poverty report that we're talking about yes, that came out yes. yesterday says more than one in five kids in Manitoba live in poverty. Uh, just yes. to sort of let you know why we're talking about this, only Nunavut has more kids living yes. in poverty than we do here in Manitoba. I want to read yes. a quick text message here from Tom because I think this is a, a good area to discuss as well. Tom sure. says, Hal, yeah. I'm not against temporary solutions like pain to attack attack, uh, child poverty, but we need long-term solutions to things like housing, affordable housing, more support for school meal programs, rehab, and the list goes on and on and on, and Tom's absolutely right. He is, and you know, know, here's here's a good example of of what what Manitobans live in and probably face. Uh, The welfare system has not had an increase in 20 years now. Uh, They had a small increase to people in this, but can you imagine with inflation and everything, not having an increase in 20 years. And that just makes it harder and harder and harder to get out of welfare. Uh, and, uh, and you, you know, uh, things just, you know, pile up again. You know, the, everything is stacked up against pe- people in welfare. And I think I truly believe in my heart that a, a livable income for, for those, uh, li- you know, uh, living in poverty is, is a really, really good exa- uh, idea of what can make things work. We need to, Work within the, the for child welfare, uh, child uh, children in poverty. We need to work with the educational system, provide uh, surety for food programs, uh, universal food programs. Um, you know, and w- the biggest thing, of course, is having house- housing that is aff- affordable or low income housing. And you know, if we do that, you know, we can get people out of you know child poverty. Mm-hmm. And, How did you, you do it, Al? You you were homeless. You went from making, uh, you know, you had a six-figure job to living on the streets yeah, of Winnipeg, and yeah. then you said after your uh, period of homelessness, you were on assistance, government assistance, yeah. for five years. How, how did you make the leap from homeless to a roof over your head and then off of assistance to uh, making money and, and paying uh, for yourself? Well, you know, I got involved with an organization called Mumaway. And this is a good part of my story. And, and um, you know, they, uh, uh, I, I, when I finally got out of the Salvation Army during the second 14 and a half months of my homeless life, um, I ended up on Spence, right across the street from Mumaway. And I volunteered there for 28 months. I took courses like EIA advocacy and got suicide prevention. I got my food handlers, got my first aid CPR. And on and on and on. They allowed me to take all kinds of workshops. And what happened there was that led me to... Um, uh, becoming a, a drop-in cook at the at-home say swap program, which was a you know, that national housing program where they were in Manitoba. We interviewed 500 people and 250 people got apartments, and 250 did not. And it was it was a research study to see whether if you house people with supports, how, do those people move ahead in their lives, and what is the cost involved? And um, and so I, I went to cook at uh, to be the drop-in cook at Mumaway, and that led to me becoming uh, uh, an intensive case manager. After five years of uh, two and a half years of homelessness and two and a half years in recovery, my job was to keep people in their housing, and um, and it, it just uh, you know kind of organically evolved. And and the ironic thing is, twelve people that were my participants. Uh, in that program uh, were people I knew from my days at Salvation Army. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we developed this great trust and relationship. But that was the start of my uh, getting out of, uh, first of all, the two and a half years I spent at Mumway just volunteering, built up my confidence so I was able to, to, to move forward in my life. And secondly, getting this job as, a, uh, as an intensive case manager with the uh, at-home j program. Well, and now you basically committed your life to improving uh, the life of uh, our homeless and, and people living in poverty. And I salute you for that. Well, thank you. And, you know, that is, you know, and it comes from, uh, you know, I preach on lived experience every single day. And I, you know, trumpet the value of people with lived experience of homelessness because we, we have that intimate knowledge of the trauma that and, and trauma of poverty. And poverty, believe me, uh, um, how trauma is as traumatic as homelessness is because you had carry responsibility of your loved ones as well. And sometimes that's really, really hard. And that's why we need housing with support programs. We don't just need housing, but we need housing with supports programs to support those folks who are, who are in their houses because it's very, very difficult. And some people just can't get used to being in the housing. But again, if we, if we come up with low income housing, that will solve a lot of problems. It's a systemic thing. If we come up with universal food programs, that will help. And, you know, because, you know, when children, Living poverty, uh, it's a detriment to their learning experience. Here's and, my you know, concern, Al. Al, I'll just tell you my concern, and then I, I've got to let you go. Um, well, sure. I, I worry that it, it, this is a difficult time with uh, food inflation and the cost of yeah. things right now, the cost of living. This yep. is a difficult time for everybody, obvious for, for those uh, in poverty, even worse. It and is. I worry that because it's a tough time for everybody, the people that are living in poverty are going to kind of get lost in the noise. Uh, yeah, but you know, um, I, I'm seeing, you know, uh, um, I'm seeing movements, uh, you know, within the federal government for things, not necessarily with our provincial government, but with the federal government, and you know. Um, uh, the provincial government, it's election year, they're sure they sent out 200 bucks now, and they sent out 200 bucks earlier during the COVID for COVID relief. But you know what? We don't need small payments like that. They, everybody needs the money, for sure. But, you know, they are trying to do something, but it needs to be on a really, really higher level. Absolutely. Al, and, we uh, appreciate, appreciate your time, Al. i got to let you go. Thanks, buddy. I, I really yeah. do appreciate your uh, your input when we talk about these really important issues. Thanks a lot, Al. Appreciate it much. Joining us on the phone now, Matt Gassner, a conservation biologist at Nature Conservancy of Canada. Matt, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on and and doing this. I love birds. Uh, We have feeders here at the house. We have feeders uh, at the lake. Love birds. And this weekend is a big weekend for bird lovers. Is it the 25th annual Great Backyard Bird Count? Yes, that is correct. Yep, the 25th year of this uh, global community science effort. And uh, bird lovers don't have this. You're not looking for a big commitment here either, are you? No, no. This is uh, an easy thing where anyone can make a contribution to scientific uh, understanding of bird populations, migrations, and ranges at this time of year. It's easy because there's lots of uh, free resources available. Um, And basically what you would do is volunteer 15 minutes of your time to record the species that you see wherever you are in the world. Um, You can record the number of individuals for the species you'd like. But uh, you would submit those two two different uh, online uh, uh, applications, and that helps record your sightings to that again that global effort. And uh, so, if you're not familiar, with, you're not sure what the bird is. You're looking for numbers. Are people taking 
uh, photos? Are they recording the the sounds the birds make? Get into a bit of detail here. Yeah, you can uh, you can do all of those things. Uh, the easiest thing to do would be if you're a complete novice, if you haven't looked at birds before, and this is your first time over the weekend uh, doing so, you would download the uh, Merlin Bird ID app. It's completely free. There's no advertisements. And what this application does is you enter in where you are in the world, uh, the date, and it'll ask you three questions on what you're looking at. So it, looks, it asks about color of what you're seeing. It asks the general size and where it's located in the habitat. And so it draws on a large database of observations in your area. It narrows it down to that time and location for that time of year. And it gives you a short list of species, and it provides photos and sounds for each of those species to help identify what you're looking at. So once you uh, select your confirmed uh, which species you're looking at, it records that and contributes it to that, uh, again, that large data set associated with the great backyard bird count. Um, and the weather, uh, and, 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 and I'll just say, and I'll just say quickly, Matt. I'm just looking at the forecast here. The weather won't be that bad. Uh, Monday is going to be colder with a high of minus 17, but it'll be perfect to get out for at least 15 minutes. Yes, yeah, it'd be. It's great weather to get out, get some exercise, some socializing. Um, and even if the weather is bad, you could record uh, through your window at your feeders if you'd like. That helps. Again, we're just trying to get a better understanding where birds are at this time of year. And, and you know, feeders, if they're there, that counts as well. Mm-hmm. And so what do you, so this is fun, right? But then what do you do with the data, all this information that gets collected? How does it help? Yep. <clears throat> so this contributes to our, our scientific understanding of birds at this time of year. It gives us an indication of the state of our natural world. Um, so, for example, in Manitoba, we consider ourselves a, a prairie province in part. So this would be near and dear to a lot of us. Um, scientists have used data sets like, the, like what you'd be contributing to this weekend. They use data sets to discern that grassland bird species in Canada over the past 50 years, some species have declined in population by 30 to 80%. Um, so that's a drastic decline. So by contributing to data sets like this, you help our understanding of, of where birds are, how their populations are doing, and how they're responding to changes in their habitat. So a lot of species you know, uh, depend on grasslands, including ourselves. So the more information we have, the better in terms of improving our understanding of how they respond to changes and, and what we can do to potentially better uh, those habitats for them. You know, I'm glad you brought up bird numbers because I can only, you know, uh, go back to when I was a kid. It seemed like there were a lot more birds around 20, 30, even 40 years ago. Yeah, that, that is correct. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of species in Canada have uh, been documented to be, be declining. And again, using these large data sets, scientists have, have been able to, to demonstrate that. that. Um, and, but there are some species that have responded uh, to conservation efforts, a waterfowl being included in that. Um, so yeah, there has been a decline. Um, there's been a change in a lot of habitats. And, and again, the more information we have uh, in understanding how they respond to changes, the, the, the better we are at potentially improving those conditions in, in the places that they live. And I'm curious, with the great uh, backyard bird count, 25 years this has been happening, have there ever been some incredible discoveries? Like, I'm sure somebody has seen a bird that even you experts have said, wow, that's crazy that that bird was seen. Yeah, you get those, some of those uh uh, all, you get those all the time. Um, I don't know of any particular ones for this um, event, mm-hmm. at least within Manitoba, but I know that 
uh, eBird, places that you can record your observations, is a great resource for uh, finding those sorts of rare species. So, for example, I had found a flycatcher here uh, in the summer at one point, and it was apparently the first record uh, for that species. So, yeah, birds are moving throughout the landscape always, and it's just good to be able to document, uh, you know, whether it be for, for, through photo or just an observation in these databases to, to help scientists understand, like, where they are. Sometimes individuals yeah, travel outside the normal ranges, and, and that's important for information to capture as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, Matt, uh, before I let you go here, you know this, but bird watching has gone high tech, right? At, at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas this year, they had a bird feeder that actually takes a picture of the bird as it lands at your feeder, tells you what kind of bird it is, keeps track of all that stuff. And I just got, Lorene just sent me a photo of a guy who's wearing uh, a helmet. It's almost like a welder's mask. And uh, around the front of it is a bunch of hummingbird feeders, and there are hummingbirds feeding at this guy's face, essentially. So, I mean, I mean, listen, you're looking for old-school birdwatching this weekend, but there's some pretty cool technology and gadgets out there now if you're really into birds. Yes, there's, there's lots of resources. Um, and like I mentioned before, the Merlin Bird ID app makes it easier than ever to identify birds, and... Uh, the ebird.org is another one that you download. And again, those short lists are really helpful. So anyone with any skill level can contribute to this discount over the weekend. Matt, appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Have Matt Gassner is a conservation biologist with Nature Conservancy of Canada. The 25th annual Great Backyard Bird Count is happening this weekend.